everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast. My name is Dr. Scott, and I am the Inclusive Pedagogy Lead in the Center for Teaching and Learning at CU Boulder. And I'm joined, finally have a co-host here today. You all have been just listening to me speaking with many of our guests over the last couple of episodes, but I'm pleased to be joined today with Karen Crouch, who is one of our instructional designers over in, or uh, focusing mostly on the universal design for learning. Karen, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Scott, and I hope I can live up to the co-host role that you've given me. I thought I was just hanging out, trying to make things interesting. But yeah, Karen Crouch, I work in the Center for Teaching and Learning as Instructional Design and Technology Consultant with a real passion for active learning and also inclusive pedagogy, instructional design, and universal design for learning. So thanks for having me here today. All right, awesome. I'm happy to have you join me. So I'm excited personally, and I know Karen also is as well, but excited today because we have the opportunity to personally learn uh, about one of the most critical aspects of inclusive teaching, inclusive pedagogy, which is active learning. So we've we've talked a little bit over the last couple of episodes about what DEI looks like with, within inclusive teaching and some, some brief overviews of, of establishing welcoming learning environments, but it's really awesome for us to focus on that aspect of, of active learning from a brain science perspective here today. So we are pleased to welcome Dr. Beth Rogowski, Beth is an associate professor at Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches undergraduate methods courses that are focused on principles of teaching, learning assessment, and graduate research courses. So, uh, Beth, Dr. Rogowski, which one do you prefer to go by? Beth is good. And since you found my Amazon book uh, or my Amazon profile, I've gotten to be full professor now. So, congrats. Thanks. So, um, so let's see. One of the things that you mentioned that I got really excited about is this inclusive practices. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read chapter two yet, but that chapter is the one we call teaching inclusively, the importance of working memory capacity. And I just get so excited with the way we started looking at inclusive practices in education and in the classroom. So for us, we really started to think about working memory capacity. And that's how we want to be inclusive for those with lesser working memory capacity, of which I am one, and those with uh, more working memory capacity. So that's how we took um, teaching inclusive, inclusively to be. And of course, you can't grow your working memory capacity, but what you can do is grow your long-term memory. And so when you think about it, that's what we as teachers need to do to really level the field is to give students that background of prior knowledge that we expect them to have in order to be successful in our classroom. And I would like to say we always do that, but we don't. We sort of make a many assumptions as to um, that students already know a lot of fundamental material that we, we need to build up for them. So we look at teaching inclusively as looking at what is their working memory capacity because uh, and we we ha we have two different types of learners that we talk about. We made a metaphor, which is the race car and the hiker. But don't think for one second that the race car learner and the hiker learner is always um, a separate separate learner, um, because it really depends on your working memory capacity, and most important, that prior knowledge, because. If I don't have um, a, a huge working memory capacity, and I can only hold a few things in my working memory, if I have prior knowledge and background on that material, I can my my world is open up limitless, um, 
And that really makes up for a low working memory capacity. So when we talk about inclusiveness, that's where we, um, we, how we approach inclusive practices and how to make sure that both the race car and the hiker are getting what they need in order to be successful. I'm glad you said that it could be a variety of learners, but I definitely put myself into the hiker category. I don't know about you, Dr. Scott, but I was like, yeah, that's me, slow and steady, getting things little by little. But I'll tell you what, like I'm a race car when it comes to writing um, lesson plans, but you tell me to cook or explain anything in physics, I am a complete race car. I haven't studied physics since high school and I don't really cook. So, um, in those two respects, I'm a definite hiker. It's going to take me a long time to figure out what I don't know and how to, to master that. Um, I'm going to be spending a lot of time on the internet looking up, you know, different cooking terms and technology, uh, techniques. So, um, that's how we approach it. How are you mostly approaching inclusive inclusivity in your teaching? Well, um, one, thank you, because we just jumped straight into all of it. <laughs> from, from the introduction, it was just like, let's just go with it. So, so I do appreciate that. And I, like, uh, like Karen stated, I, I'm also one of those individuals, mostly when it comes to reading and understanding, you know, different materials, especially now, right? Like the, the work that I do serving as a, as a consultant on our campus, as it relates to understanding the information and then delivering it to our faculty members, the best way that I can deliver it in the most effective way is to make sure that I also understand it. So for me, like I have to be a hiker as it relates to reading the materials and then even slowing down and asking myself what I believe to be at least some critical questions about the content, the materials, and then thinking about what potential questions could be asked from, uh, from, our, from our participants, right? So I think in answering your questions, uh, Beth, I think that is reflective of that. You know, trying to be inclusive is thinking about the audience as well as it relates to the ways in which you are uh, that you're working with uh, where you're working with, you know, either it's college students or as you all are talking about, you know, you, you're working with all different levels of, of education, whether or not it's K through 12 or higher education as well. So, you know, part of that is also then do you know your audience? So fortunately, I have been in a position now, you know, been in this role for about eight months. So but the number of times I've facilitated different discussions and gone around, done different, you know, consultations, inclusive teaching is not necessarily new, but it's new to a lot of folks who are engaging in it now. Mm-hmm. So with that, you know, you can start to kind of pick out some of the thematic questions that folks are asking. And we'll talk about that later because one of the, the consistent ones that I get from our faculty is time. <laughs> like how much time do I have to dedicate to creating like these inclusive spaces? So I, if I know that for some folks, you know, time is a consideration, then I think about some of the concepts that I'm becoming aware of and then looking at what are some of the practical uh, ways that that can be packaged for our faculty members uh, in a way that's not, or it doesn't at least feel like it's like super time consuming to them, right? And then also right. just looking at um, just like other struggles in the field in and of itself, right? So what does the literature it say, itself say about folks' experiences with implementing and developing some of uh, some of these classroom materials, as well as, you know, humanizing the the teaching experience? I think one of the things that somebody who now also teaches as an adjunct instructor is that I believe inclusive instructors are the ones who really care about how effective they are being with their students. None of us want to fail any student, let alone a collective group of students. And sometimes, you know, like that's the, it's the catch 22 of it where like you get so caught up in the process of it where it's hard to like take an an objective step back and then ask yourself, but am I actually doing as best as I possibly can at this point? You know, am I being unfair 
to myself, while also, you know, like what are my students also communicating with me about this experience? So I don't want to take up too much time with all of that. But yeah, I think like in answering your question, you know, the ways that I approach being an inclusive instructor is being able to look at the course content and how that is connected to our students, how our students are connecting uh, with that material as well. What is their progress inside of the course look like? Um, are they finding ways to connect with the materials? And some of the ways that I have been, you know, taught how to and encouraging them while also being open myself to the ways in which they've learned to also conceptualize like that material as well, right? Like we're looking at students as, as experts of their own knowledge, right? You know, being fountain, being a fountain of knowledge as well. And then, you know, being not critical of myself as an instructor, but critically observing how I've been engaging with students as well. Yeah, and just to kind of add on to that, my background in teaching is from an international education. So I worked with uh, international students as non-native English learners. So that's where I was faculty in the classroom. And so for me, that means variability exists, right? Like a huge range of variability and not looking at students as like, there's the average student, which I think you address in your book in some ways, like there's a myth of the average, what's normal um, and kind of similar to Dr. Scott, I think for me, it's about reflection and also just having a growth mindset, you know, like continuing the learning journey for myself as an instructor and learning about different frameworks and theories and ways to look at inclusive pedagogy. Nice. You all give like a really great, you know, definition of, um, well, actually, let's go back to what you were talking about before when it comes to like the working memory piece of it, because one of the things that I think is misconceived as, you know, being smart or whatever versus like unintelligent is that, you know, which students can balance more versus like who <laughs> balances less, but then also keeping in mind that, um, you know, again, like, like you stated, like you all stated inside the book, it's really not a race. So with that in mind, what are some like practical things that you all can encourage instructors to do to start, you know, working with and connecting with students in terms of like tapping into, I guess like that, you all gave the analogy, right? Of like juggling kind of like, you know, like juggling like multiple things like at the same time, uh, but really right. on average, yeah, like the average quote unquote student can can juggle about four, I guess like ideas or thoughts at one time. So what are some practical things or some, you know, some things that you can encourage instructors to start thinking about doing with their students to help identify what students can juggle at once in terms of like that working memory versus just making these assumptions about what students should be able to juggle um, at any given stage? Things for me that I like to do is really do practice what I preach. And so standing in front of a group of students for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes and lecturing is not effective. However, we have content to get through and that, you know, is one of the quickest ways we can get through the content. So what I've done to structure my classes and I found to be very successful, although it is a lot of work and it is time consuming, is that I have really gotten into the habit of, we do a lot of, um, I give them some direct instruction. And when I say direct instruction, um, I mean, you can maybe say I lecture for like five minutes. And then I automatically have them do some sort of retrieval practice. And that could be them reviewing what I just said. It could be in the form of quiz questions that I ask on material that I've just given. It can also be um, a think-pair-share with a partner or to look over their notes and tell me what the muddiest point is. So I'm doing that typically five to no more than 10 minutes, every five to 10 minutes throughout the class so that I'm constantly getting them uh, to know, uh, to review their lessons or review the material. Now, one of the things that is difficult is 
when you ask questions in the class. Um, and then you typically one student responds. So you have one student responding to your question, and then you have 60 other students being off the hook. And then how have they learned? So one of the things that I've started using, and I, I was introduced to it first with the pandemic, is a software called Pear Deck. Now, um, Nearpod is very similar to Pear Deck, but Pear Deck allows teachers to use their notes and see their notes while instructing. And that has been such a game changer because what I'm able to do with Pear Deck is embed questions throughout my presentation. And so when I'm not doing a think pair share that is involving other students talking to one another verbally, or I'm doing um, something else, when I'm not doing something else, then what I'm doing is I'm asking questions through Pear Deck and I'm having them take notes through Pear Deck. And at the end of the class time, they get my slides with their responses emailed back to them. And that is one example of how technology has really enhanced my ability to provide active learning in real time to every student. And yes, you're charged for it, but to me, it's a nominal fee compared to what it's been able to do with my classes. And um, so I think that is one way active and learning can be incorporated. And it still allows for that, um, that lecture component, although much smaller, five to 10 minutes, and then practice, retrieval practice. The other thing I do is I actually give homework every night. That does mean I have to grade it every night because, you know, if you just assign a student to read a chapter, they're not going to read the chapter. So you have to have something else with it. And so, um, and I have a variety of activities that I do. Uh, for example, sometimes I ask them, give me the three most important quotations in the chapter and tell me why those are the most important quotations. Or I'll have them like, I'll say, take notes the old fashioned way. Um, and I'll have them use the Cornell method or uh, or sketch notes or some sort of some sort of note taking ability. But I have different activities that I have them do while they're reading at home um, so that I can be sure that they're actually reading and doing the instruction that I asked them to. Is it a hundred percent fail proof? No. But I know the most of my students are actually doing what I want them to do. And so what we have is we have this cycle of me giving them instruction, them practicing the instruction, and that happens throughout the entire class period. And then when they go home, instead of waiting two days and losing a lot of information, they have retrieval practice to do at home. And then that does mean I have to grade all of that, which I have 133 students. So, um, yeah, that does become a little time consuming, uh, especially on the depth of what I'm having them do, depending on the depth of what I'm having them do. So did that help answer a little bit of your question about practical strategies? No, yeah, it does. Um, and I appreciate you also acknowledging the time consuming piece of it because you know and no by no means do any of us want to minimize or even really disregard the fact that teaching inclusively I wouldn't necessarily say that it's I mean it is right you know time consuming mm -hmm. I don't typically like to think of it as being time consuming one of the things I was said so in the presentation that I facilitate with our faculty across campus is, you know, just shifting the ways in which we think about, you know, how we are engaging with our students as well as the curriculum and the design of course. So one of those things is to, you know, try to refrain from thinking about what else do I have to do in terms of thinking of the things that we need to do to support our students. Because when you start to say things like what else, what else means is that gives you the idea that there should just be something bare minimum that I should be expected to do. 
And that really is it, right? So if you are asking me to go above and then beyond that, typically what happens in our society now, right? We typically think of things as I don't get paid enough to do that, <laughs> like, or, or like that isn't my job. Um, and, and it's really important to start, you know, thinking beyond that, because who are the casualties of such thought processes and not just thought processes, but like those actions, right? If I, if I just have a bare minimum, these are my office hours. This is how much time I'm, I'm only going to spend an hour uh, or two hours dedicated to like grading or constructing the class or whatever, then you also, you know, that's going to be reflected in and um, and the effectiveness of your teaching strategies inside of that course, right? So I do right. appreciate you. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking about the uh, the time consuming piece of it um, because we do want to acknowledge that. Um, and of course, you know, my doctorate is in education, so I'm always a homer for you know staying true to the uh, to the nature of education and what our responsibility is uh, to our students. And not necessarily thinking about, you know, like just bare minimum, like what's my job and like what's not my job. Karen, you were about to right. say. I, I don't even know how you see that, Dr. Scott, how you see like visually that I'm I'm wanting to jump in. But I feel like what Beth was saying about this active learning being utilized for retrieval, right, for the students is fascinating to me. And uh, I know what you were saying earlier, Dr. Scott, was this analogy about four balls, right? And it's like, We've got this long-term memory that's persistent that we need to get the information to. And then as we're teaching something, we've got the working memory. And I did love seeing this octopus and saying like, hey, you can only get like four balls, four pieces of content or information juggling at the same time. And so really the octopus is like a quadrupus. And so what, <laughs> what resonated with me as both, you know, former faculty and almost as a mom, right? Was I remember moments of my life, as you mentioned, like some students can juggle more than four balls, right? And some can juggle less. And I I almost was feeling like um, context matters. You know, there's some days, especially when you're a working mom where I'm like, I got eight balls in the air, I'm rocking it. And there's some days and it sleep well, there's something going on in the background and I, I only got room for one or two. And I, I was thinking about like, how, do you think context matters and, and, and what, are, what are we seeing in our students, right? And kind of what their daily life experiences and how do you adapt your lessons for that? So that's kind of like one, one part that I came up with while y'all were talking. Well, my background is actually in K-12. I was a middle, uh, I was trained secondary and then spent a lot of time in the middle school. And one of the things that I did when I got this job um, at the university 10 years ago, I, uh, I, um, I didn't really know how to teach undergraduates. I thought I did. I thought I did. And I had taught eighth graders successfully and I had taught high school students successfully and I taught, um, graduate students successfully, but I never had taught undergraduates. And so I looked at them and I'm like, okay, you're more looking like graduate students than you are high school students. Um, so, and we're in college now, so I need to treat you like what I perceived college students should be treated like. And so I would do something silly, like I would assign a piece of reading and then expect them to have read it and come to pair, prepare to class to, um, to talk over and discuss it. And I almost had this expectation that they would just come to class, have all these notes, have all these questions and get into um, like depth with what I had assigned. And instead, what I got was crickets. And I got them like looking at me as if I was the craziest person on earth to have expected them to have read that. And then I realized, wow, my perceptions of how I should be teaching are quite different than how I've always taught before. And so um, while I, uh, the, 
you had said mentioned about the book being for K-12, while the practices um, are successful in K-12, they've completely carried over to higher education. In fact, when I first got to Bloomsburg, that semester where I thought I knew how to teach and I had no idea how to teach, um, I don't know if you give teaching evaluations at your school, but we have teaching evaluations at our school and you want to be in the A, B range. And so you want to have high A, B range. I was in like the 40s and it, it goes by a hundred scale. So I was in the 40s on things like clear and to the point, um, expectations, uh, just, and that's abysmal. And I couldn't believe it. And I thought, okay, I need to find a new job because clearly I don't know how to teach undergraduates. Well, but I liked my job and I wanted to figure out a way. Um, so I went back to the teaching methods that I knew worked for me in the past when I taught. And I'm like thinking to myself, why are these methods so effective? And why aren't they being used more in higher ed? And so that got me to thinking, what is the science behind these methods? And it just so happened at about that time in my career, I was putting out to the universe that I really want to learn from someone and to be mentored and taken into a project that would be life-changing. So that's what I actually put out into the universe. And soon after, Terry Sanowski, who I knew from my postdoc days, he reached out to me and he said, Beth, I'm working with Barbara uh, Oakley and we would like to write a book on the science of teaching. And I'm thinking, wow, you never know what you're going to get when you throw out something to the universe. Yeah, way to manifest. Yeah. And then, you know, it took us about two years, a little less, um, no, probably a little more than two years to write the book and to do all the MOOCs, um, which I think, you know, that's where we, um, the videos that we've created really bring the book to life. Um, so, so yeah, so it was through my experiences making the switch from K-12 to higher ed and thinking I knew how to teach for higher ed. Um, and then realizing, whoa, I'm not doing well. The students are not happy. I'm not happy because they weren't learning at the degree that I wanted them to. So I really had to switch everything up and really think about the science of learning. No, that's fascinating. I think we're all like nodding and kind of like laughing on mute because we're like, yeah, we resonate with that. I think we've all had those reflective moments of like, <gasps> and we do have teaching evaluations here. And I think, I think our university is looking at kind of making that a little more consistent and transparent. Um, you know, it's kind of by department right now. Um, so it just depends on the culture of the department. Um, but that reflective practice, right. And we've all been there where we've been like, oh, that lesson didn't go so well. What can we do next time? Um, so yeah, totally resonates. Yeah, and I wanna hammer on something else that you talked about throughout all of that, which is you know not knowing how to teach college students because you were mostly teaching um, you know, K through 12. So, and I typically ask this question now with faculty members across our campus, which is how many of you all learn in some formal capacity how to teach college students? And no more typically than about maybe 5% of the room ever really raises their hands. And mm -hmm. really part of that, you know, is to get folks to understand that most of us have not learned <laughs> how to formally teach college students. Many of us learn by seeing, and mm -hmm. as we know, if you look back at a lot of you know, historical college, practice, college teaching practices, even before that, you can see a lot of the inequitable ways in which you know, college students have, have been taught. Um, and some of these unrealistic expectations of, of college students as well. 
So I appreciate you, you know, like talking about that because one of the things that I talk to our faculty about understanding is that teaching in and of itself is a socialized, it's a socializing process. <laughs> like we we learn to do by seeing. Um, and if we're not seeing it, then hopefully you are at least doing the work to read up on or like listen to podcasts, you know, like this, so on and and so forth. So it's it's really important to do that while also. You know, you also weren't like super critical of yourself in that, like in a bad way, right? Like you were more of like, what can I do and how can I meet the needs of, of my college students, right? So from what I gathered from that, it, it sounded like you you view it as a huge responsibility for you, right? To, to learn how to connect with the students that you're going to be teaching instead of leading with this expectation that we all have about like what's supposed to be expected of, of college students? Oh, 100%. I, yes, I took ownership of, of those evals and I realized, you know, one or two evals um, that were bad, that were, weren't part of the norm are to be expected. But when overall they were just down low, I thought, this is a problem. What am I? And then I got back to my roots of doing what I know has always worked and also looking and taking that responsibility on myself to really look and see what the research is saying. And, um, thank you because that was a humbling experience. I had had 15, 14 years in K-12 and I had a few years in, uh, teaching adjunct graduate work. So I kind of felt very overly confident in coming in and then to realize what I think the persona of how college professors should teach and how they do teach are two different things. And I was doing it based on my perceptions of how I should be teaching, not on what was most effective. Also with, you know, thinking about the, uh, the evaluation piece of it, I'll give you a personal <laughs> experience that I had over the, uh, the winter break. So I was over at a, at a friend's place and we were actually watching the, uh, the, the Ohio state Georgia football game. And, uh, I'm from Ohio, but I am definitely go blue. So I'm, I'm Michigan all the way. Uh, I'm from Georgia. So, so we've got beef now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, but that was a good night for me to see Ohio state lose. But but with that, as we were doing introductions, because some of the folks I just did not know, um, one of the one of the the ladies in the space asked, you know, like, oh, so like, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, I work at you know University of Colorado Boulder, and I work in our center for teaching and learning. I'm an, an inclusive pedagogy lead. And then she said, oh, I am an instructor at a community college of nursing. She said. Uh, Maybe my uh, my students would tell you that that I need to come talk to you or whatever because my evals are always just like so bad or whatever. And she kind of scoffed at it. And internally, like this is you know, this is Quartez coming out. Internally, I wanted to be like, maybe you're not a good teacher, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Right? Like if if you're student, it's one thing like you just stated. If you have one or two students, it's really expected, right? Because you're never going to hit a hundred percent, or rarely do folks hit a hundred percent on connecting with students and, and creating like these really well uh, learning experiences. But if you have an overwhelming population of your students that are saying that, then there's some truth in that, right? So we then have to humble ourselves to then listen to students because again, you know, it just goes back to, and I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> continue beating on this point, but I just think that a lot of folks think that, we are doing much better than we are actually doing as it relates to our students. And because of that, we you know, convince ourselves that it's the students who are wrong versus ourselves, right? Because of the moniker that we are the experts. Um, but we might be the quote unquote experts of the content, but the students are the experts of the learning experience with you. And sometimes we just don't have a lot of faculty members that are able to sit back and just listen to their students. However, I want to make a caveat for this. There are different work ethics among students. And so 
even though in this case that I just explained, it was me that was the problem. Um, and I needed to be more specific and I needed to, um, use more of my active learning techniques and, and be more specific. There are students that will always resist extra work. They will not want to do homework every night. They're like, well, most classes, you just get two exams and the final, why are we doing homework every night? And I'm just like, well, if you want to get really good at something and own it, you have to practice every day um, or at least every other day. And if I just gave you two midterms and a or two whatever and a midterm and a final, two tests and a midterm and a final, then you're going to probably cram and cramming does work in the short term. So you'll get a decent grade but you won't have retained much. And I'm looking, um, I teach future teachers how to teach. So I'm looking at the long-term picture here. I think you just brought out my undergraduate experience. I was the procrastination nation. Um, that was huge for me. Cramming was great. And I think that speaks a lot to your book about like, is that going to be short-term memory that you're really not going to retain? Or are you, how are you going to get to it? And also, I have this memory, Professor Van Gerven, best teacher ever, used a lot of metacognition and active learning techniques that forced us to connect as uncomfortable as it was for me. I will never forget being in that class, making these connections and remembering physical anthropology, you know, and it was that's not what I was learning when I was an undergraduate. But I think also it's interesting because active learning, there's some research that shows that students are like, I don't know how I feel about this. And a lot of times it's up to the instructors to frame why you're bringing active learning in um, because there's so much research that also shows like you're going to have better learning outcomes by incorporating some active learning. And so you in the book, you connect active learning to like the retrieval process Um you know, I'd love for you to explain that a little bit to our listeners, how those two are correlated. And personal question, Beth, what's your favorite active learning? I know there's like 250, you've mentioned a few in the book, and it might depend on your lesson, but what do you personally love to use for your active learning? Right now, I am still a big fan of Pear Deck and the fact that I can get all of my students at once engage and, and answering questions simultaneously. And then what I follow that up with, which is another favorite of mine, is cold calling. I actually use an app that, um, or popsicle sticks, whichever I have, uh, with students' names on them, and cold call. And that really helps. Um, and the power of peer uh, the peers, um, and not wanting to make embarrass, not embarrass themselves makes them stay, you know, with their attention. Um, so that is my number one go-to. What I'm always upset about is that in America has been sold a, a bad good of products. So we've drank the Kool-Aid and believe somehow that in order to be active learning, it needs to be hands-on in order to do something. And that ends up with too many posters, too many cut and paste, too many technology presentations that are just bells and whistles and not enough substance. So Jennifer Gonzalez in her blog, Call to Pedagogy, does a great job calling the, describing these uh, activities, and uh, she describes them as Grecian urns, um, like a whole lot of fluff, but not um, much substance, and really just low-level recall activities. And so that has been... Um, one of my missions is to make sure that my retrieval practice is not 
the Grecian urns, not the fluff without substance. That's like the paper mache, right? Where you're like learning about the Grecian urns and then you just make a paper mache, which may not really relate to the history or any piece. Yeah, I remember reading about that and was like, yeah, I remember, you know, apples Mm. would be a theme and then we would go to an apple farm, blah, blah, blah. They don't all connect. So I'm glad you bring that up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I had a really great, and thank you. That's really powerful um, as well. You know, like too many too many technical or technology components of the work, like the fluff, right? It just becomes right. fluff, is <laughs> what it feels like, when, and not enough stuff. And that's what we do in higher ed. We don't have them make posters and we don't have them cut and paste, but instead what we do is have them make these PowerPoint or Google slide presentations that are basically the same thing and it's kind of like, okay, but somehow they're acceptable because it isn't cutting and pasting. And I don't find them to be acceptable. Now, inside of the book, I want to go back to that because you all, uh, and this is one of the things that I'm learning to do as well. Because again, you know, as you stated earlier, sometimes we focus too much on like the practical aspects of active learning or even some of the misconceptions of what we think active learning is instead of like what you all talk about in your book, Uncommon Sense Teaching, which is really the brain science pieces of it. So you all talk about the declarative as well as the procedural aspects of like the brain. Can you talk a little bit more about the differences between these two and why they are so important for instructors to consider as it relates to the ways in which they structure a lot of their uh, classroom activities? So the declarative pathway really is for information you can declare, like declarative sentences, information, facts, um, examples, uh, experiences that can be retold. It's a lot of what we are learning about in, in, in our classes. The procedural pathway, pathway um, really deals more with intuitive um, information. Um, So uh, for instance, that would be like, we've tied our shoes so many times that we don't have to think about it. It's like, I know I've, I've internalized what five times five is, and I can just shout out 25 without having to think five plus five plus five plus five plus five. And that's really because of these two um, two pathways into the neocortex, which is long-term memory. And they both are, they are two very separate pathways. When we are in um, university classes and we are receiving information through instruction, uh, a lot of times what's happening is that sensory information comes into the brain and it goes right to the hippo, um, working memory, that octopus. And we know that that octopus can only hold about four pieces of information. And then what happens is the hippocampus helps working memory out by trying to um, by trying to get that information into long-term memory. And there's sort of a little dance that they play. Now, on the other hand, the procedural pathway, what's happening there is information's coming in and it goes straight to the basal ganglia and working memory is involved, but not to the extent it is in the declarative uh, pathway. And it's more automatic. Now, what we want to do as professors is we want to get our students to have that information automatically so that they don't have to stop and think and look up definitions and terms. And so in order to tap into both, that's where we came into this, we came up with this learn it, link it framework where you start out and the teacher's presenting information and all the neurons are out there and they're starting to make connections. And then you go through guided practice and the students are practicing and the teacher is watching and giving corrective feedback in real time. In real time is important there. And then the students 
demonstrate after enough practice, they demonstrate that they can do it. And that's where the procedural pathway kicks in. And once they've demonstrated that they can do it and they've consistently done it over time, they can use that information and it's automatic. And that's really the value of the procedural pathway. So did that answer your question? You had asked about the science behind active learning and that whole dance that's going on in the brain is really the active learning. It's not cutting and pasting or putting bells and whistles into PowerPoint presentations. It's, <clears throat> it is that retrieval practice, which gives working memory um, a chance to get information from the hippocampus into, into long-term memory. No, no, you did answer that because I, I mean, I, I automatically start to think about, you know, Paulo Freire, right? You know, the, the difference between being a passive learner or being treated as a passive learner and those banking methods of, of education where we deposit into students versus, you know, the, the, the converse of that, which is, yeah, getting students to be active participants in their own learning experience, right? So... That's one of the things we talk about is that, uh, you know, the inclusive teaching emphasizes the active piece of it. If it's not active, then it's not inclusive, <laughs> right? So no, you um, you answered all of that. And it's, it's important for us, right? Because again, we're gonna be talking about this here in a couple of weeks in our own center as well. And Karen, you know, you Karen also over in UDL, that center, in that area. They, there they was so many really similarities, yeah. I was just going to say like the different networks of the brain. Um, and this is part, you know, universal design for learning talks about, you know, the frontal lobe, just as you did the strategic network, which is planning tasks, organizing, you know, kind of the how of learning, going back to the recognition network, the what of learning to gather the facts, categorize, but your book makes it fun. Like you've got all these like really cool sketches and ways to look at like hippocampus and neuro, you know, the neocortex. And for me, that is not what I studied. I'm kind of a, a humanist and international affairs person. So to be able to see neuroscience and have it explained, you guys use sketches. And I thought that that was a really just a fun way to, to look at learning. And there are just so many similarities with um, universal design for learning, which is also kind of a framework based on neuroscience. And I never thought um, neuroscience would be something that I'm wrapping my head around, you know, I'm much more experiential, but it's, it's a great way to be thinking differently about teaching and how you're getting through to students. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do when we were writing this book is I wanted to make it accessible. And I wanted also for students not to want to sell it back automatically for money. So it was really important to me that we get this textbook as inexpensive as it can possibly be. So you can buy it for $20 retail, or you can get it off of Amazon. And I think um, they give a huge discount. Um, so it's definitely affordable and it's accessible. We really try to have fun with it. And we try to explain things in everyday language that you know, anyone can understand. And that was something very important to me because I didn't want it to be pedantic textbooks that are a thousand of pages that, you know, no one reads and they just buy and they might read, you know, a chapter here or a chapter there. I didn't want that. We, you know, the economy is not like the best. So, um, I wanted students to afford it. And then I also wanted them to like the book so much that they would keep it. Well, you did something very meta where you're talking about how jot sketches can really help with recall, like having students sketch something out. And I was like, ooh, the hidden artist in me like loves that. But then you added such great sketches that it actually did help me as a reader with the recall of the information. Mm -hmm. So. Well, and to be clear, uh, because I don't want folks to get the wrong idea, it's not a coloring book. <laughs> so yeah. there is a, yeah there there is a lot of great information that is uh, that's inside of the book. But from you for you all, one of the most inclusive pieces of it, right? Because some people are visual people. Um, there are a lot of really great illustrations that are inside of the book. 
that as you were reading, like, and it's right there, right? So as you were reading, you see an illustration of what that looks like, right? So you're able to compute that, you know, or have options of computing that in multiple in multiple ways. So I think that was like a really inclusive way of, uh, of, of drafting the book. And those illustrations and our PowerPoints and um, in, uh, from the, they're all on Coursera. We, we give our materials away. Um, we have test questions. There's probably over a hundred test questions on Coursera that, uh, you know, test the content. So we um, really, I wanted to also give instructors some um, who might want to use this book uh, with their classes. I wanted to give them um, some really needy material for their students. Awesome. Well, I want to make sure that we respect your time as well, because um, we're a little bit over the time and everything. But just any like final thoughts that you would like to to give to our instructors, anyone who, um, you know, I guess like what's your sales pitch for learning a lot more of the brain science behind being an an active an active active learning strategies. What's your pitch? So my pitch is just really that you know. People think teaching is so much easier than it is because they've gone to school for so long, but it's not common sense. It's quite uncommon sense. It is not, um, if you think it's common sense for yourself to go into any classroom, stand at the front of it, and instantly students are giving you attention, looking at you, giving you eye contact, and have a notebook out ready to like take every word in that you say, I mean, that's, that's not at all what happens. And if it does, that's because you build up a lot of procedures and behaviors. And so Uncommon Sense Teaching is that book that gives you all the inside secrets and it then tells you in a very understandable way, the neuroscience behind why that works. Awesome. Well, Beth, thank you so much for, for joining us here today. This has been really fantastic. Really excited for our campus community, as well as other listeners who are not on the CU Border campus um, to hear this. If you all have not purchased it, and if you're not sold as of right now, go out and buy the book, Uncommon Sense Teaching. Uh, three really great scholars, authors um, in their own rights as it, re as it relates to inclusive teaching. So thank you for being here. Karen, is there anything you want to sign off with? No, you guys did good. Beth got the pitch. You made the plug. Um, so I, I also just enjoyed being a fly on the wall. Thanks for inviting me, Dr. Scott. Yeah, no problem. Well, thank you all very much for listening in. And we look forward to uh, you all joining us on the next episode.